Support for The Gray Area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Benji Jones, a senior environmental reporter at Vox, sitting in for Sean Illing. I write about climate change and the environment, and today I've got some good news. The panda is no longer endangered. I'm talking about those black and white bears that live in China and eat bamboo and are extremely cute. In 2021, China announced that the bears had been downgraded from endangered to vulnerable, a less worrisome category, after decades of conservation efforts. This is a big deal. Pandas are not only cute, but iconic. They've come to represent threatened wild animals everywhere, which basically means that the very symbol of endangered species is no longer endangered. But I also have some less good news. While everyone was busy saving pandas, the rest of nature kind of fell apart. Ecosystems like coral reefs and tropical forests are collapsing. Animals are now going extinct at an unprecedented rate. It's frankly depressing. I'm not saying that panda conservation is somehow to blame for the downfall of nature. But as some experts see it, the model of conservation that's helped pandas hasn't actually worked to sustain biodiversity at large. Is there another way that we should be doing conservation? I mean, what is it exactly that we're trying to save in the first place? And why? I'm Benji Jones, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Jason Gilchrist, an ecologist at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. Jason is a wildlife guy. He's devoted much of his life to conservation, working with well-known animals like chimpanzees and rhinos, but also with ones that you might not have heard of, like the banded mongoose. They're small African carnivores. I first talked to him while I was writing a story about pandas a few months ago, and how we reeled these animals back from the brink of extinction in the face of these broad declines of biodiversity. He can talk for days about ecosystems and what makes them tick, but he also thinks deeply about what works and also what doesn't to sustain them. He has a lot to say and a thoughtful critique of the movement to conserve nature, and I was eager to talk to him again and hear more about it. 
How long have you been an ecologist? Oh, that is a good question. Well, at what moment did I become an ecologist? <laughs> yeah. I guess that's like a philosophical question. It is, isn't it? So I could answer it philosophically by saying, I have been an ecologist for as long as I can remember. So I, I can thank my late father for that. He loved the outdoors and he was great at exploring and going for walks and enjoying nature. And so I grew up with that and my entire life has been orientated towards enjoying and trying to understand the natural world better. Hmm. That's lovely. We're going to get back to pandas, but I want to start by talking about another creature, one that's maybe a little bit less popular, but that you know very well, and that is the banded mongoose. Can you tell us what the banded mongoose is and, and where they live? Absolutely, I can. Yeah. So I should be clear here, I didn't grow up wanting to be a banded mongoose <laughs> a researcher. That might not surprise anybody. But I, I grew up with an interest in ecology and evolution, and I was particularly interested in doing my research on the banded mongoose because mongooses are small uh, carnivorous mammals. There are a diversity of different species across Africa and Asia. Most of the species are solitary, so individuals live alone and they get together uh, for breeding purposes. Hmm. But the banded mongoose is one of a, a few mongoose species which are social. So they live in groups and those groups can get quite large. So when you get animals that choose to group, to live together and to cooperate in doing things, that raises all sorts of interesting uh, ecological and evolutionary questions. And what are some of those questions? Well, thinking about what are the costs and benefits of living in groups versus not living in groups or where you have species like bandy mongooses where they, they simply aren't ever living alone. You're looking at groups of different sizes, again, to get this insight into what are the benefits and the costs of doing so. So are there benefits in terms of finding food? Uh, are there benefits in terms of holding territories? Are there benefits in terms of reducing predation in incidences and, and predation pressure? But the additionally interesting aspect of the social mongooses is that they engage in something called cooperative breeding. And what that basically means is that adult individuals within the group help to look after each other's offspring or young. Wow. And again, that's a really interesting thing. So it's like the whole family is involved in raising kids? Yeah. What draws you to understanding natural systems like this? Like, what, what, Why is it so useful to know how different animals raise their kids, for example? I suppose there's two conceptual answers to that question. One is, I just find it intrinsically interesting. We live on an incredible planet in terms of the biodiversity that we're surrounded by. That biodiversity is the sum total of all the species, of all taxonomic branches on planet Earth. And each one of those species is unique, okay, in terms of where they live, in terms of what they eat, in terms of what they do. And they're all making contributions to the ecosystems and the function of the ecosystems that inhabit planet Earth. And so, to my mind, yeah, I just have this, as I think we all do intrinsically, I suppose just in people like me, it perhaps becomes more to the fore than it does in others, but just interested in understanding why things are the way that they are, or why a bandied mongoose has come to be what a bandied mongoose is. How do they influence and how are they influenced by 
abiotic environment that's around them, but also the biotic environment. How do they affect the habitat? How does the habitat and the other animals that live in that habitat affect them? Yeah, and they're cute. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I suppose there's that as well, yeah. So most people maybe don't think of the banded mongoose as a, quote, charismatic species, one that's super popular, whereas something like a chimpanzee or a panda, as I was talking about in the intro, are kind of your highly popular, very famous animals. And so I guess my question for you is just, why are some species more charismatic or popular than others? Yeah, so what we're talking about is taxonomic bias. Huh, what is that word? So taxonomy is the classification, the identification of different species, of animal and the other organisms that are out there as well. So plants and fungi and uh, microorganisms. So taxonomic bias refers to the fact that we, as the human species, tend to place more effort in studying, researching, understanding and caring about species that we're more closely related to and or that we perceive as being more useful to us. To come back to your question about why do people generally know more about and care more about chimpanzees than bandy mongooses, the sort of psychological explanation for that is because we are drawn towards animals that are more similar to us and we relate and associate more to chimpanzees than we do to a mongoose unless you've spent many years studying mongooses <laughs> in which case you're a bit weird like me you're a mongoose person it's absolutely yeah, yeah more towards mongooses than chimps yeah that's so funny how do you relate to a mongoose <laughs> it's this weird thing where if you spent time with an animal and Yeah, I'm talking, you know, weeks, months, years, and you're spending hours and hours every day out there watching those animals. You start to think like the animals. You start to read the landscape like the animals in terms of where there are threats, where there are opportunities, and in terms of appreciating the interactions between individuals within groups and just reading what behavioral cues between individuals mean. So you literally start to think like a mongoose. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Um, You mentioned taxonomic bias. We tend to be attracted to or drawn to animals that we can see ourselves in or are more similar to us. That makes sense with chimpanzees. But what about things like tigers and pandas that have seemingly drawn a lot of our attention when you think of like the most famous animals? Yeah, we might need a psychologist to answer that specifically. I mean, If I start in general terms, the thing to say there is that they are relatively large mammals. Right. They're both carnivores in terms of their taxonomy, although obviously pandas are weird uh, carnivores because they are vegetarian. Famously love bamboo. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So again, it's an interesting thing. We tend to focus our attention and we tend to historically have focused conservation attention on relatively large mammals. Hmm. Now, what are the reasons for that? The reasons are that I suppose they're more visible to us. And Benji, you know, having researched and written about pandas, but why pandas are special. So maybe I should be asking you the panda question. (laughs) But if, if I take tigers and other large carnivores, if we think about human history and selection pressures, they are one of the few taxonomic groups or animal species which are a major threat to our lives. And so we've had good reason historically for putting our attention towards them. Right. One of the things I think about is whether this is really just about human perception or there's actually some scientific basis for 
valuing certain animals more than others. Like, when you look at a panda, I mean, people joke about how they look kind of like evolutionary failures, like they're very lazy looking. Is our attention towards them mostly based in like human minds and psychology? Or is there something about the tigers, the rhinos, and so forth that like scientifically makes them more important than other animals? Yes, I think it is a bit of both. We are drawn to larger animals in terms of gaining our attention. But I think there is some logic ecologically. And I hesitate philosophically to talk about some animals or some species being more important than others. Right, right. And I suppose this is one of the points that we very much want to explore and investigate here, is that if we want to conserve planet Earth in the long term and the biodiversity that has evolved on planet Earth, then we ideally need to move away from focusing on endeavouring to conserve single individual species and actually think about conserving biodiversity holistically rather than looking to prioritise the conservation of particular individual species within that. So if we take large mammals and, and large carnivores, the impact that an individual within that species has on the ecosystem is larger than individuals within, for example, uh, insects. So in that sense, if we get it right by identifying large species which hold large home ranges and which have relatively large impacts on the ecosystems that they occur within, then in that sense, there is some ecological sense and looking to conserve uh, those species. What we're getting to there is thinking and talking about the differences between flagship species and umbrella species. In simple terms, the definitions of flagship species and umbrella species. So flagship species is something which gains the publicity, which is used as a tool to raise awareness, uh, to gain attention and support for conservation. Now, Single species conservation in itself doesn't have to be bad for biodiversity if the species that we target for that conservation are species which work as umbrella species. And the concept there is that that species is acting as an umbrella and that it's sheltering a diversity of other species within the same habitat by doing so. There is some logic if we identify the right species to conserve as long as they're the right species, and as long as that conservation in doing so is conserving wider biodiversity. Isn't raising awareness about animals a good thing for conservation? Who really cares if people get excited about one animal over another? Well, Jason does, and coming up after the break, he'll explain why. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money. How to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might want to check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. 
You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. So we talked about how it seems like different animals do have different value or at least charisma in the minds of of people, even of researchers in some cases. And so you do have like the pandas, the chimpanzees get a ton of attention. And then you have the mongooses. I mean, maybe the mongooses are not a good example because they're people like you who spend a lot of time studying them. But there are animals that are considered, I mean, they could be insects or whatever, less charismatic, less popular. And I guess my question is just like, so what? Does it matter so much that certain animals draw more attention than others? Does it matter that the panda has attracted so much attention, so much resources? Like, is that just a good thing? Because it's always good to put attention on species. That's a really good point to make, actually. So if conservation biologists like me at times sound like we're being critical of saving certain species, I've come across this in the context, believe it or not, in the UK of I've said things about grey squirrels. And some people have taken that to mean that I somehow want red squirrels to go extinct. (laughs) That's not the way that I view the world. But a point to make there is that if we focus on some species and in doing so we lose other species, then ultimately we lose biodiversity, yeah? Hmm. So the argument here is that if we conserve pandas, and if pandas are not good umbrella species, i.e. if conserving pandas doesn't help to conserve other species within their geographical range, then we're going to lose the unique beauty and history and ecological value that those other species provide. So single species conservation ultimately can potentially not help other species. And I think with the way that the world's going, I don't think we have the luxury of saying, well, let's be selective in prioritizing 
the conservation of some species whilst simply accepting that other species will go extinct because we don't find them as interesting or as attractive or deem them to be as important. Because I think ultimately every species is important, whether we know it now or not. (laughs) So you can think of it kind of like a spotlight. If you're spotlighting certain species, other species in the ecosystem, obviously ecosystems are made of millions of parts. They might not get the attention. They might then decline. And we might not even know about those declines because we're just not putting our attention on, on those other species. Yeah, absolutely. So there's relatively recent research which has shown that there are large carnivores that historically have shared habitats and geographical ranges with panda in China. And during a period of conservation success for the panda, we've seen very dramatic declines in those carnivore species. So that's indicating that panda conservation is working for the panda, but it's not operating to conserve effectively wider biodiversity. And you made a really good point there that we need to look, we need to have the data to understand that. Now, looking at large carnivores like leopards, snow leopards, doles, and wolves, they are being looked at, okay? There will be all sorts of invertebrates and other more obscure species that we simply don't have the data on. So they're potentially invisibly disappearing. I think that if we want to conserve biodiversity, the way to do that is to conserve all species. So we either expand the single species approach to to conserving every single species individually, or we take an approach where we look at conserving landscapes, ecosystems, habitats, um, areas. Yeah. And I guess the broader context here that's important is just what conservationists have been doing hasn't hasn't totally worked. I mean, if you look at the data on species declines, on ecosystem destruction, it's not it's not good. And so I guess I'm curious, like, do you see this single species approach as being part of the reason why conservation hasn't been more successful? Yes, and I think um, we could have done and we could be doing conservation more effectively in terms of conserving a wider biodiversity. Like at the end of the day, conservation is is a human endeavor. We have to make decisions about what we're protecting and how to protect it. At least I think that's I think that's true. I think we have to make those decisions. And so a big question I have is just what exactly is it that we should be conserving? Is it animals for the sake of zoos? Like, I don't know, pandas seem like they're very much a zoo animal. Or as you mentioned, like we should really be focusing on wild landscapes, on ecosystems. Can you orient us a little bit in terms of just understanding how you even see like the purpose of conservation? Yeah, certainly. I think it is one of those things that even different conservationists may give you different answers to that question. And certainly within the wider human population, you'll get different answers. I suppose this is the point, isn't it? I mean, we as a species, we're so dominant over the planet and the future of the planet and everything else that's in it is that ultimately, as you say, it's what we want, what we think as a society that ultimately will determine what else we share this planet with. And ultimately what our natural and unnatural landscapes will actually look like. So for me personally, as an ecologist, I think that the aim of conservation should be is to continue to have self-sustaining, interacting, evolving ecosystems in nature and to endeavour to have them and their components as intact and unperturbed by humans as it's possible to be. 
while accepting pragmatically that we have a growing and an increasingly demanding human population. That's why we need conservation, because we need to find effective ways to try to maximise the conservation of those functioning ecosystems in the growing challenges that we have. And you've already touched on the fact that, and it's impossible to say this without it being slightly depressing, that you know we're aware of these issues and we've been we, i.e. the conservation movement, has been endeavouring to positively conserve biodiversity for quite some time. But the stats, the figures that we see in the likes of the Living Planet report uh, indicate that we're not going in in the right direction. We're not succeeding at the level that we need to succeed. So that's why I think we're having conversations like this, is it's how can we most effectively utilise the resources that we have and how can we most effectively achieve those conservation goals. I think it can be hard for people to understand the term ecosystem and functional ecosystem. Like an animal is an animal. It's like a physical thing. We can see it. But when you talk about functioning ecosystems as what we want to sustain or restore, it's a little bit more opaque. What are some examples of that? Like, what does that actually look like? So maybe the way to think about that is to think about habitats. So we have forest habitats, we have grassland habitats, we have mountain habitats, we have freshwater lake and loch habitats, we have marine habitats. And so these are environments that have characteristic structure, which is made up of the species that occur within them. And not just the animal species, but the plant species, the fungi and the microorganisms that occur in those environments as well. And the logic here is that we continue to live on a a very beautiful planet (laughs) thanks to the biodiversity that we have and thanks to that diversity of environments, of habitats that we experience. We know that if we continue to lose habitat and we continue to lose species that both create and maintain those habitats, we're ultimately eroding that natural diversity. Now, that in itself, I think, is something that we have a moral responsibility to try to stop <laughs> destroying it and to try to conserve it for the future. And why should humans care about a grassland somewhere or the mongoose ecosystem that you study? Yeah. So taking a, an anthropocentric perspective or a selfish human perspective in terms of what, why does any of this matter to us? What does it mean to us to have that over and above the intrinsic value that many of us gain from the natural environment. So when we talk about functioning ecosystems, we're ultimately talking about systems that clean the air that we breathe, that filter the water that we drink, that produce the pollinators that pollinate the crops that we grow, that ultimately leads to the foodstuffs for the livestock that populations eat. So yeah, if we continue to erode nature and to degrade ecosystems, ultimately it's going to have rather unfortunate impacts on human populations and therefore human well-being within human populations. Where do humans fit in to the ecosystems when we talk about a functioning ecosystem? Because I'm thinking about how people have lived in, in the U.S., for example, for millennia. There are many indigenous tribes and I get a little bit confused with some of the terminology because when we talk about like even if we're trying to create a functioning ecosystem or some people say like a wild ecosystem or wildlife, the term wild itself is confusing to me because is that supposed to mean a lack of humans? But 
if that's true, then what about indigenous people? Like, how do you think about just the way that humans are a part of the environment and how that affects our definitions of things like wild landscapes and so forth? In terms of the philosophy of nature conservation and the history and future of nature conservation, if I can bring the word rewilding into the conversation. So rewilding is a relatively recent term, but it's a term which has gained quite a bit of positive momentum because it's a pretty positive outlook in terms of how we do conservation. So in a nutshell, rewilding refers to ecosystem restoration. So repairing and restoring ecosystems and essentially to to make them more biodiverse and to make them more functional where they've been historically damaged by human populations. And I think often there is a misunderstanding or a perception that rewilding means dehumanizing, i.e. removing or emptying human impacts on landscapes. Ultimately, rewilding is trying to help and encourage nature from where we are right now. And there are various ways in which we can go about doing that. But I think it's important to acknowledge that ultimately ecosystem restoration, conservation, it's not about removing humans from the landscape. It's ultimately about allowing the human population to benefit from biodiversity and nature that is there or that we can encourage to be there. According to Jason, we need to be focusing on saving entire ecosystems, not just single species. But how is that different than what we're doing now? Coming up after the break, we'll discuss the current approach to conservation and where it falls short. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kids' shoes when they get too big, or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. 
And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So we started out talking about individual species, animals, and how conservation has focused a lot, at least in the last 50 years or so, on protecting these individual species, the pandas, the rhinos, the tigers, and so forth. And then you've shifted us to thinking about how we should really be focusing on creating functional ecosystems or sustaining functional ecosystems. We've talked about what some of those can look like. I'm just wondering, where do things stand in the conservation movement today? Do people agree on what needs saving? Do people generally agree with what you've said so far in terms of we need to just be focusing on ecosystems instead of species? Like, where are we right now? Yeah, I think in general terms, there's been a a movement towards landscape scale uh, conservation or ecosystem restoration, as we've just been discussing. Once again, I think single species conservation has its role, okay, because people, as we've discussed, psychologically, people tend to associate and relate more to individual species, particularly charismatic ones, versus thinking about a habitat or an environment. Okay, so I think single species conservation still has a role to play. I think we can do it more effectively. And we've talked about umbrella species versus flagship species in that context. But yeah, I think this this appreciation that it's important for us to endeavour, and I think we are, as a field, as a movement, I think conservation biology is becoming more effective at looking to conserve biodiversity and ecosystem function. We clearly still have lots of room for improvement in terms of increasing the effectiveness of us doing it. But I think we're moving in the right direction. But like, how do we know what wild is? Like, how do we, is, is this, is this just looking back in history to see what used to be there? Or are we using other kinds of scientific tools to understand like what a functioning ecosystem looks like? I think those words can mean different things to different people. Yeah, I come back to this point that, again, this is a a point that's often raised with regards to rewilding, is that rewilding is about trying to take an environment back to some previous point in time and history. Now, I think there's an element of that. I think there's an element of wanting to know what used to be in an area or in a habitat before humans have had a major impact on that habitat or area. So I think that's useful in terms of thinking about what that habitat would look like or if if we're looking to restore a habitat, that helps to inform us. But I don't think we should be tied to trying to recreate extinct ecosystems simply for the sake of it. So, you know, do we bring back mammoths? Do we bring back dinosaurs? I mean, you know, what what are we trying to recreate? So I think conservation generally is much more pragmatic uh, than that. And again, I come back to this point that what is wild? Well, wild is where we have more nature than what we have at the moment. If we can make places wilder, whether they're already what places we think of as being wildish or whether they're places that are urban or somewhere in between, I think the general goal and aim to make the world a better place for, for everybody is to make it more wild, to have more wildlife, to have more nature. 
So that's not necessarily about trying to bring it back to being, you know, what it was at the end of the last ice age or whatever. Yeah, and not to be annoying, but nature, like, do we just mean non-human life? Yeah, I I do, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, so this relates to a point you brought up earlier as well. And actually, if if I may say so, in your Vox article regarding the pandas recently, I think there's a lot of really interesting points there about ex situ conservation. So basically about how we treat and manage wildlife out with wild places. So we're talking about zoos and captive breeding and the likes. Again, for me as an ecologist, what is wild? Wild is is wildlife or what is nature? Nature is it, it's the biotic elements of our environment, but it's them being out in the environment. It's not having them caged in a zoo or in a, in a museum. It's actually having functional ecosystems, wherever they may be, but actually functioning as naturally as they can be. Yeah. And so then, do you see zoos as, I mean, zoos are are kind of marketed as tools for conservation, especially today. I know there are critics of that idea that they could be for conservation, but if zoos are not nature because it's not the natural environment, I know the vocabulary here is tough. Do you see animals in a zoo as something different than nature? Yes. They're wild animals, but they're not in the wild. So zoos have a role to play. Good zoos have a role to play in supporting in-situ conservation. So that's conservation of wild animals in the wild. But I, I struggle to think of a world where we see conserving wildlife as actually simply having those animals, those species living in zoos and not actually living in the wild. I. I I struggle to see the point in that. Yeah, yeah. Like, to me, we've lost. We've lost something. (laughs) We've lost a battle. If actually our aim is simply to have species existing, but only existing in zoos, then why are we doing that? Other other than to give us something to look at and to learn what we've destroyed in nature, (laughs) in the wild. So to my mind, I would love to live in a world where we don't need to have zoos, where our wildlife is in the wild. Yeah. And then also, I'm just thinking about the experience of people in zoos, too. Obviously, like zoos are for, in a sense, entertainment and how that compares to being outside in a natural environment. And so a lot of us live in this strange reality where to see wildlife is to go to a zoo and not walk out to our backyard. And it's interesting in the context of this conversation because I'm like, all right, when we go to the zoo, we're actually we're not seeing nature. We can see nature in our yard, potentially, but we don't see it as such often, I think. I think. I don't know if you agree with that. No, I think that's a very perceptive observation. Again, good zoos play uh, an important role in terms of education, in terms of raising awareness, educating people about biodiversity, about ecology, and about conservation. So that's an important role. But I, I think you're right. I think, I think there's an underappreciation of nature in many cases. I just feel that biodiversity itself deserves to be out there in the natural world rather than it being something that we view in a catalogue, whether that be a, an artificial environment that we're conserving it with. So that, that has a role to play because of the state that the planet's in. And I'm pragmatic enough to know that that's a necessity because of the state of the world's biodiversity. I don't think we should see conservation as having succeeded if that 
is simply in having a wild species still in existence, but actually only existing in captivity. Right, right. No, I, I agree. Obviously, it's a privilege that you've been able to travel and spend so much time in an environment that's so different than the one you grew up in. But I'm wondering if our listeners, if, if just everyone can have more appreciation for nature without having to travel so far. Like, are there ways that we can experience some of these ecosystems and the interactions therein without going very far? Is nature closer than many of us might think? So I think, again, as I said at the beginning, you know, I feel like I've been an ecologist all my life. And that's in large part to my experiences when I was growing up and being able to go out and enjoy local nature reserves. So nature is all around us if we are perceptive enough to observe it. Now, again, I still think we can have more nature around about us within urban environments. We can do more to facilitate and encourage that. But Everybody can have biodiversity accessible within their life. I mean, nature always finds a way or tries to find a way, even in the most urbanized of habitats, there will be what we think of as weeds trying to grow up through the cracks and the pavement. There will be that abandoned um, backyard. There'll be that industrial lot that's been derelict for a while. There'll be a river, a stream or a burn running through. There'll be a, a lake or a loch or you'll have access to the coast. Nature finds a way, even if it's not massively obvious nature to us. Okay, so we've very much in our conversation, we've been guilty of taxonomic bias and that we've mostly talked about mammals and, and vertebrates. And a, a taxonomic group I want to bring forward, which is probably never going to be a flagship uh, species group, but arguably as an umbrella species group, are the earthworms. Okay, tell me about earthworms. <laughs> well, uh, earthworms, I mean, soil is so important to everything. We've talked about habitats, okay? I mean, ultimately, whether we have trees growing or shrubs growing or grasses growing or flowers growing, the soil, the composition of the soil is a major part of that. Soil is very much the coming together of the abiotic and the biotic elements of the environment. And earthworms are invertebrates, which are ecosystem engineers. They play a major role in aerating the soil and in helping to, to break down and recycle organic material and therefore make nutrients available for vegetation to grow within the soil. Now, we walk on top of the soil and we walk over and around earthworms all the time. Okay, that's an example of a taxonomic group that we're generally blind to. I know that there are obviously issues focusing on on single species, but I, I love the idea that if not the panda as a flagship species, as the iconic endangered animal, then maybe it's the earthworm that we can redirect our attention to. I would love to see that. I'd love to see um, the earthworm <laughs> being the you know the poster, <laughs> the poster animal uh, going forwards for conservation. That tends to not happen. Yeah. But you know, even in our own environments, going out and looking for the small things. So. You know, look on leaves, look, uh, get down on the ground, look um, at, at the plants, look on the surface of the soil, and you'll start to appreciate the organisms that are there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a pessimist, and I spend a lot of my time reading and writing about environmental issues. Often the stories are negative. We've talked about biodiversity loss as a problem, some of the issues with conservation and ways that it's changing. Do you have any do you have anything that's going to make me and our, our listeners hopeful about the future of wildlife as someone who's not used to 
getting a, a big dose of hope. <laughs> I'm also a pessimist, Benji, so oh, no. I'm not necessarily oh, no. the best, best person to ask for a positive um, response to that question. Well, science is is about collecting data in order to facilitate understanding, okay? And science continues to do that job. And the more knowledge and understanding that we have of the way the world works, the way in which we're damaging the world, but also importantly, the way in which we can endeavor to mitigate or reverse that damage, then the better future we'll have for biodiversity and for ourselves as human populations. So I'm very encouraged by the fact that we're continuing to do good science, we're continuing to learn, we're continuing to evolve in the context of how we go about doing conservation biology. And then amongst other things, it also includes the communication of science. So, you know, I'm very grateful also to have the opportunity to be able to talk to you and the listeners about these things in a way that historically scientists would not necessarily have been able to do. And so I certainly think there's hope. I think there's hope from science, there's hope from the general population, but in amongst all that conservation optimism, I think we also have to acknowledge the the limits and uh, the patterns of biodiversity loss are, are, are not good. And so we need to do more than we're doing. We need to put more emphasis and resources into biodiversity conservation, and we need to be more effective in how we use the resources that we have. Yeah. Which is what this conversation has ultimately all been about, isn't it? Yeah, more, more airtime for earthworms. Jason, thank you so much for, for coming on. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you very much for having me. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And Am Hall is the boss. Special thanks to my good friend, Caitlin Boguki. If you want to learn more about pandas and how it's a success story nested in a much sadder tale, check out the story I wrote for Vox. It's called, We Pulled Pandas Back from the Brink of Extinction. Meanwhile, the rest of nature collapsed. Let us know what you think about the episode. Drop us a line at thegrayarea@vox.com. And if you appreciated this conversation, please share it with your friends. Sean Illian will be back with another episode on Thursday.